0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day, glads and pods, coming to you live from Gadigal Country... Another edition of Late Night Live. In a moment, UK PM Rishi Sunak is claiming a Brexit breakthrough on Northern Ireland, but will it be enough to satisfy dissenters in his own ranks? Then we're off to the oceans of Asia, the world's largest source of fish, and the mounting problems of acidification and overfishing. And then keep listening for the riveting story of a feisty French woman who saved some of Egypt's greatest temples from being drowned by the rising waters of the Aswan Dam. But first to London, where Prime Minister Richie Sunak is claiming a cautious victory in the Brexit negotiations with the EU on the vexed matter of Northern Ireland. We welcome back Naomi Smith, who is, of course, uh, Ian Dunt's stunt double. Naomi is a public policy expert, the CEO of Best for Britain, and co-host of the wonderfully entitled political podcast, Oh God, What Now? So welcome back. Let's talk about the Brexit breakthrough. UK Prime Minister Sunak... And the President of the European commissioner, uh, Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, have just announced this new deal, the Windsor Framework. Please explain.
0: Well, uh, thank you for having me back, Philip. Lovely to be here. And yes, what a day we've had in the UK over the last 24 hours with Finally, a breakthrough on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is part of that Brexit deal that Johnson, uh, Sunak's ex- predecessor but one, negotiated um, and that has been a thorny issue for the last couple of years. And finally, a breakthrough after a series of very pragmatic, grown-up, calm negotiations between the UK and the EU, which is a marked difference from the approach of Johnson uh, and Liz trust even. So um, very, very welcome news, not only for Northern Ireland um, and the people there, of course, for for whom this is a big breakthrough. But I think this will also be a shot in the arm for the whole British uh, economy, for UK businesses that trade over that Irish Sea uh, border and into Northern Ireland and and onwards into the single market. So there have been a few concessions on both sides. um, And basically what it means is that lots of the paperwork, that Brexit bureaucracy, the red tape that traders between GB and NI were having, that's Great Britain and Northern Ireland, were having to complete in order to move their goods backwards and forwards is now gone. That That is set to be gone, um, uh, unleashing lots and lots of potential for, for trade to just flourish rather than get bogged down in form-filling. So that's, Now, that's Naomi,
1: I understand it uses a green lane versus yep. red
0: lane. Yes. Okay, so a slight explainer on that. Um, what you've got to remember is that the European Union is a single market and so it has lots of rules and regulations about what it allows in and doesn't allow in to that single market in order to protect Uh, high-quality standards, regulations, that kind of thing. It doesn't want very low-quality, potentially dangerous things, usually agricultural products, entering the single market. But now what will happen is that um, there will be a trusted trader scheme uh, that is extended, meaning that uh, goods can move much more seamlessly through from Great Britain to Northern Ireland if they're destined to stay in Northern Ireland and have very little risk of ever making their way over the Border uh, into the Republic of Ireland, which of course remains within uh, the EU single market properly because Ireland is still a member of the European Union. So, goods that are going from uh, the the rest of the UK into Northern Ireland and are just going to stay in Northern Ireland because people there are going to consume them or make something else with them, they're fine, they can go through a green lane, no checks. And those that are Potentially heading on into the Republic of Ireland will undergo full EU customs checks uh, in the ports, and that is called a red lane.
1: Australian listeners are demanding to know about the sausage wars. <laughs>
0: Well, yes, um, I mentioned agricultural products. They're they're the sort of things that um, uh, uh, have been (laughs) um, classed as a potentially uh, high-risk item that, you know, sausages. You're never really sure what's in a sausage, so I kind (laughs) of get it. I kind of get the fear. (laughs) They're they're, they're
1: colloquially (laughs) known as mystery bags.
0: Indeed. Oh, that's such a good name for them. Lovely. I like that. OK, so yeah, so sausages were a sticking point and And uh, of course, you know, lots of uh, producers, farmers, pig farmers, uh, food processors and consumers were just like, oh, for goodness sake, it's just a sausage. Does it really matter if one sausage gets bought at a supermarket in Derry and somehow makes its way over the border in somebody's lunchbox into Donegal uh, in the Republic <laughs> of Ireland that afternoon? And everyone's sort of seen sense over that.
1: Well, that's, that's that's wonderful. Won't Boris be unhappy because his old plan, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, is now redundant?
0: Well, if only. Well, I mean, that was technically, I think, a Liz Truss bill, but of course, heavily supported by Johnson. Johnson is aching to come back. I mean, he he is so desperate. He has been freelancing as the de facto prime minister of the UK for the last few months, going off to. Kiev, meeting Zelensky, off to the States, other places trying to pretend that he is still uh, in number 10 when of course he's not. So he's been looking for any opportunity to come back and he very much hoped that the right flank uh, of the Conservative Party would not back Sunak on this and indeed the DUP, the Democratic Ulster um, uh, Unionists who are um, not yet being clear about whether or not they do accept this uh this uh, Windsor agreement they're keeping their cars close to their chest and saying they want to pour over the detail Johnson I think was hoping for sort of big rebellions from there and that he could sort of come back and say well only I can unite uh, the Brexiters behind the the Brexit party that is the Conservative party so um he's sort of keeping himself a bit quiet at the moment uh I think he's waiting to see whether Once the detail has been poured over by that right flank of the Conservatives and the DUP, he may be able to wedge himself in there. But right now, it's not looking good for him. It does look like Sunak's pulled off a victory.
1: I understand that Ursula had a chat to Charles.
0: She did. Now, this is um, causing a few feathers to be ruffled because in the UK we have uh, parliamentary sovereignty. We have a head of state that, of course, is the monarch, but they very famously try very hard not to involve themselves in political situations um, and and try to keep out of it. The the signalling that this sends, that Charles was happy, apparently on the advice of Number 10, to meet with Ursula von der Leyen uh, yesterday, uh, shows that perhaps he is up for being a little bit more politically engaged than his mother was. Um, But of course, what you've also got to remember is that the Unionists in Northern Ireland, they love the monarchy. They love all things, you know, British and traditional. Um, and and uh, you know and, and are big fans of the monarchy, probably more so than any other quarter of the UK. So it's put them in a very difficult position as well, um, and 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 they'll be feeling pretty sore uh, that the the institution that they so dearly want to be very closely aligned to, the British monarchy, um, has has met with the EU leader.
1: How have the hardline levers in the Conservative Party reacted to Sunak's deal?
0: M- I mean. Quite incredibly, not a single Conservative MP has broken rank to criticise this deal in full yet. Now, Sunak's playing a bit of a gamble here by not uh, pushing uh, Parliament to, to vote on it quickly. Um, and actually, he doesn't have to push them to vote on it at all. There's no sort of legal requirement for him to do that. But it may be sensible to shore up um, uh, support for it. By, by get, not pushing that to a vote, this week, and we, we expect that it might come within the next couple of weeks. He is, of course, allowing them time to find things they don't like about it uh, from that right flank. But early signs are that they are all, I think, pleasantly surprised that this hasn't been a big sellout to the EU, that he has managed to. Um, uh, creates some mechanisms whereby uh, the Northern Ireland um, Assembly Stormont, which of course hasn't sat for a while, sort of gets forced back into uh, sitting and then has control over some of the uh, rules and regulations as we apply this new um, Windsor framework going forward. However, I think, you know, we've got to remember that the Labour Party is still well ahead of the Conservatives in the polls. Um, and so that might be driving some of this um, lack of discontent and lack of rebellion. These Conservative MPs know that they need to get behind the Prime Minister so that he's got some chance of fending off a Keir Starmer victory at the next election.
1: Over the, the long time that I've been chatting to your colleague and my friend Ian Dunt. It's been an endless list of scandals, scandals, scandals. <laughs> so now I understand there's to be a code of conduct for MPs.
0: Oh, I mean, look, scandals, scandals after scandals. It, it, it doesn't make you very proud to be British. Lots of the time, you know, our current prime minister has got two fixed penalty notices. This is Rishi Sunak. He got one for breaking lockdown rules he's got another one for not wearing his seatbelt in the back of a car of course johnson got um uh, a fixed penalty notice as well he's currently under investigation by the UK Parliament's Privileges Committee over whether or not he misled Parliament. We've had a steady drumbeat of corruption scandals uh, from our politicians, most of them in the Conservative Party, particularly over contracts that were awarded during COVID. So a new code of conduct can't come a moment too soon. And this is a refreshed code. So there always has been one, but this is being refreshed. uh, Does it have um,
1: any teeth?
0: Well, hopefully, I mean, it needs to because um, public trust in the body politic in the UK is incredibly low, unsurprisingly, uh, after everything that's gone on over the last few years and the whole kind of sleaze uh, and corruption that has dogged them with the headlines. Um, It's going to ban any paid parliamentary advice, so members can't provide advice to an outside employer uh, you know about how to navigate um, the the parliamentary systems they're going to have to have a written contract, a very formal contract uh, for any work any employment that they do outside of their role um, as a a member of parliament and it's going to have to list all of their duties in that role and very importantly they're tightening the lobbying rules because there have been scandal after scandal after scandal basically cash for access, people buying uh, access uh, you know, through lobbying firms to uh, very influential people, both um, uh, MPs themselves but also ministers. So we do need that to come into force and let's see let's see whether it'll have teeth or not. Uh, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating on that one.
1: Finally, a tribute to uh, Betty Boothroyd, the first female Speaker of the House of Commons. She's just died at 93. Here's a bit of Betty in action
2: waiting for silence. The Honourable Gentleman isn't going to get silence. Yeah. Produce your voice, Mr. Hill. Yeah. I've just made it clear to Mr. Duncan Smith that the leader of the opposition is not giving way. And yet, since I made it clear, he's been on his feet three times trying to intervene and to disrupt. Order! Order! Oh, I haven't finished! I haven't
1: finished! I have not finished this yet! She's been remembered very fondly on all sides, apparently.
0: She has. Not only was she this incredibly inspiring woman, she was the first woman speaker of the House of Commons here in the UK. That It was truly groundbreaking for the time, and she was... Fierce. She was funny. She had this very, very sharp, wit very formidable woman. And if you ever sort of talk about breaking the glass ceiling, she broke it, but she broke it with a panache. And, of course, she was also a pro-European conservative. They are lesser spotted these days. So we will miss her, but what a ripe old age she got to and what a wonderful, wonderful legacy she leaves behind.
1: Good on you, Naomi Smith, public policy expert, CEO of Best for Britain and co-host, of the political podcast, Oh God, What Now? Now, it's a matter of Oh God, What Next? And it's the perilous state of oceans and fisheries in Asia. Did you know, beloved listeners, that the Asian region dominates the world's fishing industry and production of fish? It has the largest fishing fleet, about two thirds of the global total. And a UN report last year found that Asia produces 70% of the world's fish for consumption, but that globally invaluable industry faces uh, several climate-related threats. Professor Steve Whittacombe is a world leader in ocean acidification and he will join us from Lisbon where he's attending the 2023 World Ocean Summit. He's from uh, Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK and is the Director of Science and Deputy Chief Executive, oh, and he's also an advisor to Back to Blue, an initiative of The Economist and the Nippon Foundation, which works on the pressing issues faced by the ocean. And Professor Quentin Hanitch is making a return appearance on the Little Wireless program. Quentin's back in Wollongong after one of his trips around Asia, working primarily with Korean and Japanese fishing organisations. Quentin leads the Fisheries Governance Research Program at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources, and security. So while uh, while Stephen Whittacombe waits in the wings, Quentin, can you give us a broad sketch of the Asian fishing industry? It ranges from the very tiny to the very large, doesn't
3: it? It's hugely diverse. That's totally correct. So you've got everything from small-scale subsistence fisheries that are just basically feeding the family right up to some of the world's largest fishing vessels fishing in far-distant oceans. It's hugely diverse.
1: And the industry is a combination of capture fishing, that's from boats, and aquaculture or fish farms, which we've often discussed on the program.
3: Yeah, it's really important to remember that because we've hit the peak of world capture fisheries. You know, we're basically fished and fished and fished, and that's increased over the years and the decades. Um, So we're now basically at the full peak for global fisheries. Um, Most of our fisheries are actually fished at their very, very limit, and we have approximately about a third of the global fisheries that are now overfished. Um, So we need to rebuild those overfished, which stocks, which means we need to reduce the fishing effort to do so. Um, So we're increasingly depending now on aquaculture which at the global level produces about 120 million tonnes. And we've seen that increasing everywhere, but particularly in China, which is by far the largest aquaculture producer.
1: So with populations growing, fish production has to increase. So, uh, Quentin, where we in Australia are largely focused on land production of food, many Asian countries and communities are very focused on the ocean.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. I used to work for the Australian aid program and a lot of our aid program, when I first worked there a long time ago, was always agriculturally focused when we talked about food security and that just reflected our terrestrial continental background. But when you go to places like Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, you know Japan, Korea and China, um, You're looking at communities um, that have been very much outwardly focused. The ocean is the place that feeds you. It's not just a recreational activity, it's very much part of your life in terms of the subsistence and livelihoods that it gives you.
1: And traditionally, our waters, Australia's waters, are not nearly as rich and plentiful as Asia's.
3: No, we lack these rivers, these useful rivers that pour nutrients into the water. So if you look at our fisheries, I think the total of all of our fisheries in Australia is probably equivalent to the big New Zealand fishery um, for Hokie, for example. Um, And then you compare that with Indonesia, that catches millions and millions of tonnes just within the Indonesian waters alone. So we have a very small fishery in comparison with these other fisheries. Uh, And then a lot of these Asian fisheries that we're talking about don't just occur inside their own waters, they also travel far far away to far distant oceans and those ones we call distant water fishing fleets
1: now this is why climate change impacts on the ocean will be and in some cases already are being mostly felt in the asia pacific region
3: yeah we have a variety of different impacts um so And we can talk about the sort of the technical different types of impacts like ocean acidification, but at the end of the day, they will impact in different ways on artisanal communities living off coral reef fisheries that are suffering from sea level temperature rises um, and coral bleaching events, um, right through to distant tuna fisheries in far different oceans that are now changing their migratory paths and changing their productivity levels according to different seasonal variations. So climate change is impacting on fisheries globally in different ways in different regions. And given the significance of fisheries in Asia, that's obviously a massive impact on Asia.
1: Now, just before we go to Steve, uh, give us a bit more of a sense of what's at stake. Please tell me about the Coral Triangle.
3: Okay, so one of the most amazingly biodiverse and productive, uh, and really you know wealthy um, regions in the world when you talk about biodiversity and life, is the Coral Triangle, and that includes Indonesia, Philippines, Papua New Guinea, and a few other countries around there. And you're really talking about an amazing amount of the world's biodiversity. Yeah, you know, just simply the sheer numbers of different species of of animals and you know, marine life, and We must remember that it's not just about the marine life it's about the people who live in those regions too. Um, So when we talk about managing fisheries whether it's for climate change or whether it's for other um, concerns and impacts we're not managing the fish they don't pay any attention to us at all we're managing the people. So we're trying to manage the impacts of the people in a way that reflects their livelihoods and food security concerns that is consultative and engaging, uh, and then ensures that we achieve equitable outcomes.
1: As the region is already a warm water temperature, as it gets warmer and coral bleaching occurs, I guess the fish need to move.
3: Yep. So if you're sitting on the east coast of Australia, particularly down the southeast somewhere, you might be seeing warm water you know, fish species migrating down the East Australian current and you'll see different species now coming down to southeastern Australia that you might not have seen before. If you live on the equator, of course, and it heats up, those fish are now leaving you. They're not coming towards you like you might be in the temperate waters. So when you increase the water temperatures to a certain level, you start decreasing the productivity of the fish and they either migrate somewhere else or they decline in productivity. And when you're at the equator, the only way they can go is away.
1: I'd like to welcome Steve Whittacombe who's been uh, waiting patiently. Uh, Steve, your great interest is acidification and I understand that that's only recently become widely understood.
2: Well, it's... Yes, yes, indeed. Ocean acidification is certainly one of my key areas of interest. Um, and I, I would say it, it's it's not just recently become understood. I think the issue around it has been understood for several decades now. But the evidence of ocean acidification happening and the impacts it has is perhaps only recently coming to the fore. It is one of those um, changes in our ocean which has been relatively difficult to uh, monitor uh, but the expertise is now growing and and data sets are now appearing to show that ocean acidification is not only happening in all of our oceans but also is starting to happen more quickly so the rate at which the oceans are changing is much faster now than it was 20 years ago
1: The CO2 we have produced from burning fossil fuels goes into the atmosphere but doesn't stay there. I didn't realise that it goes into the ocean.
2: Yes, around twenty five percent of all the carbon dioxide we produce every year that we send up into the atmosphere, then that makes its way into the uh, into the upper ocean. Uh, and it does that by reacting with the seawater and dissolving, and then also in doing so changes the chemistry. It reacts with water molecules to create a weak acid called carbonic acid, and that is the, uh, that's the chemical that's driving this uh, this phenomenon called ocean acidification.
1: So the oceans have taken about 90% of the extra CO2 humans have generated, so they've been doing their very best to help us.
2: Uh, they have been doing their utmost to help us, and actually it's, the, it's a natural process. That is the way in which carbon cycles around the planet from the geology into the atmosphere, back into the oceans, and then creating rocks again at the bottom of the, of the sea. But what's happening now is they just can't do it quickly enough for the rate at which we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And not only are they they trying their best to to help us, but the the more we impact upon them, the harder we make that job for them.
1: So they're really paying the price, aren't they, Steve? Now, CO2 reacts with water molecules to create a weak acid called carbonic. What to do?
2: So what do we do well first of all we need to stop emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that's uh, that that's uh, that's our first uh, um our first step in, in trying to address this problem. But there are other things we can also do. There are natural processes and natural habitats, things we call blue carbon habitats, so seagrasses and mangroves, uh, salt marshes, which, um, which trap carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and lock them away into the, into the sediment, lock it away into the sediment, so they sequester that carbon for us. So it's important that we, we, prote- we protect and restore those habitats and allow them to do that natural process. There are other things, uh, other processes at work in the open ocean where phytoplankton fix the carbon dioxide that's available and then they they turn it into organic matter and that filters down into the deep ocean. Again, we need to make sure we keep and maintain the healthy ocean ecosystems to allow them to do that. Then finally, there's there's adaptation and and, uh, resilience. Uh, We heard... We had a talk about the importance of human communities, but we need to make sure that we, we create communities that are resilient to the changes that are coming. So in essence, what we're looking to have to do is we need to stop the carbon dioxide production. We need to protect those parts of the natural ecosystem that naturally sequester carbon dioxide. But then we also have to build uh, resilience and create a- adaptation strategies to deal with it.
1: Anyone with a swimming pool knows about the pH scale that you know measures acidity, and uh, the pH scale that you point out is very sensitive. It's like the Richter scale for earthquakes. A tiny movement can really matter.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's just like the Richter scale. It's on, it's on a, a logarithmic scale. So one unit on the pH scale represents 10 times more acidity. So even changes which look fairly small in terms of the number of units that are changing have an enormous effect.
1: I'm talking to Professor Stephen Whittacombe, Director of Science at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory. Now, You point out that uh, carbonate is the main ingredient in shells and coral and that coral reefs should be uh, seen as, well, tower blocks of calcium carbonate.
2: Yeah, in essence, a coral reef, uh, the living part of a coral reef is just a thin skin that lies over the top of a, a complex uh, structure of calcium carbonate. So they provide all these structural habitats for lots of other species, which is why they are so great at, uh, at um, providing biodiversity.
1: Steve, I know you don't see yourself as a, an expert in Asian fishing, but I'm guessing there are some pretty obvious likely impacts.
2: The impact in Asia could be, could be enormous. Uh, not only are natural habitats, natural blue carbon habitats, such as um, mangroves and also the coral reefs, are important nursery grounds for commercial species, but a lot of the aquaculture is dependent on shellfish. Uh, so we know that um, scallops and um, mussels and oysters and also crabs and lobsters and shrimps and prawns, they all build calcium carbonate shells for protection. And it becomes very difficult to build those shells uh, when you are living in a in a in a marine environment which is becoming more acidic.
1: So we, are, I understand that we've seen this in a few places, including initially an oyster farm at Whiskey Creek in Washington State, Steve. So to be really clear, we're looking at a future impact on the Asian fishing industry.
2: Yes, we are. Uh, it's um, it, it's an anomaly of the. The, way, the physics in the way in which carbon dioxide dissolves in seawater, that carbon dioxide prefers to, to uh, dissolve in in cold waters. So uh, it's the polar areas uh, and the northern temperate regions which are, are feeling the impact first. But make no mistake, these impacts are coming to more tropical, um, warmer areas very, very shortly. <laughs>
1: Back to you, Quentin, the tentacles of the Asian fishing industry are, are long and complicated. So it's so interconnected with the world economy, thus a problem in Asia will be very widely felt.
3: Well, it's, it's interesting also what you paint as Asian fisheries. You know, for example... Um, a Korean persena, a very, very large industrial fishing vessel. So a Korean persena will be catching skipjack tuna in the waters of Kiribati in the middle of the Pacific and it will transship that to a refrigerated cargo vessel, which will then be landed in Thailand and Southeast Asia and canned in the cannery, and then exported to Australia and we'll eat it and we'll see the label says made in Thailand but it was actually caught in the Pacific and Kiribati would view it as being caught in Kiribati's waters and it manages the fishery and it pays for that management um, and it depends on the licensing revenue to build schools and hospitals. But the way our global systems report that is as a Thai or Korean fishery. So this, this regionalism sometimes isn't particularly accurate. And that exists everywhere. I mean, you'll see Chinese longliners in the Indian Ocean and Spanish fishing vessels in the Pacific. So it's a very, very interconnected, globally traded uh, resource.
1: Quentin, China is, of course, a a giant in fishing. Uh, I know you're familiar with what's going on there. They must be very worried about the impact of climate change.
3: Yeah, so you're seeing China take this very seriously because not only are they a very important distant water fishing fleet, i.e. they have vessels that travel tens of thousands of miles around the world, but they also have very, very important fisheries in their coastal waters that are critically important for livelihoods and food security for themselves. Um, so they've been managing their fisheries increasingly more for the last couple of decades, putting in place moratoriums and different management measures um, to try to restrict these impacts and improve their own resilience to climate change. And that's also sometimes why we see some of these fleets that have effectively been pushed out of their home waters by moratoriums and are now fishing, like we saw a couple of years ago in the North Korean EZ. Um So China's significant, but we can't just see them as a problem we also have to work with them as a solution
1: and back to you steve wooderham it's an irony isn't it that there's not much the asian fishing industry can do about uh, co2 emissions
2: well not so much in terms of the co2 emissions although actually uh, all industries can do something about co2 emissions and be part of the uh, part of the solution uh, the maritime industry and shipping in particular is uh, on a very strong uh, agenda to decarbonize the, the the fishing the fishing fleet, but also the transport fleet as well. So I think all, all marine-based industries can have a can have a role to play. Yeah.
1: Meanwhile, I should point out to the listener that you're one of your many hats as your co-chair of the Global Ocean. acidification observing network, and I know that that's uh, of crucial importance. Gentlemen, I thank you. Professor Quentin Hannich, leads the Fisheries Governance Research Program at the Australian National Centre for Ocean Resources and Security at the University of Wollongong. And thank you, Professor Stephen Whittacombe, Director of Science and Deputy Chief Exec at Plymouth Marine Laboratories. And advisor to Back to Blue, that initiative of the Economist and the Nippon Foundation. Up next, the story of a 20th century heroine who almost single-handedly got the world to save Egyptian temples from disappearing under the Aswan Dam. Well, beloved listeners, I've lost count of my many, many trips to Egypt, but I do recall one with affection. I made a a documentary film called Death and Destiny on a particularly significant uh, Egyptian dig. But despite all my uh, many trips, I'd never heard of the woman we're about to discuss something of a real-life Indiana Jones, Christiane Delos Noblecourt. In addition to being a pioneering French archaeologist at a time when there were very few women in the field, she spearheaded a crusade in the 1960s to save some of Egypt's most precious antiquities from certain destruction. Here to tell her story is Lynn Olson. Lynn's a, uh, a best selling author of nine history books, her latest is Empress of the Nile, the daredevil archaeologist who saved Egypt's ancient temples from destruction. Lynn, thanks for joining me. All over the world, from uh, St. Peter's Square to, to would you believe Adelaide and Sydney, there are ancient Egyptian obelisks. I understand. Christiane was inspired by her encounter with one of them.
4: That's absolutely right, and thank you so much for having me, Philip, tonight. Um, Christiane developed her love for ancient Egypt when she was a toddler, when she was a little tiny girl uh, growing up in Paris. Her grandfather put her on his shoulders and took her to see the obelisk of Luxor in the Place de la Concorde in in, in Paris and she fell in love with it you know she didn't care about its history she didn't, didn't care that it was 3000 years old she just loved the hieroglyphs uh, on the uh, you know the little uh, the carvings of the animals and the birds that were on the obelisk and from that time she just she just became um a devotee of, of ancient egypt that 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 grew when when uh, king tuts tomb was discovered in 1922. She was nine years old and, and that just sealed the deal for her. She just, uh, you know, she was devoted to ancient Egypt from that moment on.
1: I liked the way when she'd uh, look at the antiquities in the Louvre, she was much more impressed with the Egyptians than those uh, Johnny-come-latelys, the Greek and the Romans.
4: Uh, yeah, that's one of the stories I love the most and and if you see the she she talked a lot about this wonderful ancient uh statue the seated scholar um and I I haven't seen it at the Louvre but I've seen wonderful pictures of it and it's of a man that looks like he's alive and and she talked about you know when she would walk, through the lube and, and she felt his, her, his eyes on her. And um, it, you know, it, there was no comparison for her to that and, and the Venus de Milo, who she said, you know, was an empty, you know, a mar- beautiful marble statue, but had no personality at all.
1: She was fortunate in her choice of parents. They were both quite progressive at the time.
4: amazingly progressive. She, you know, she was born really just after the turn of the century. And, you know, young French girls from upper middle class backgrounds, most of them didn't have parents like her. They were very liberal. They were very uh, international. They had lots of friends from other countries. Uh, And they also believed that their daughter should have the same kind of opportunities that their son did. And, and they both her her father and her mother raised her to believe that she could do anything she wanted which was you know incredibly unusual in france at that time and she was a very energetic intelligent enthusiastic young girl and she just took that permission that they gave her and ran with it.
1: And nothing would uh, stop her becoming an Egyptologist. An interesting choice because archaeology was overwhelmingly macho, wasn't it, at the time?
4: Oh, my oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> you know, it, not only in France. I mean... France was one of the major centers of archaeology, uh, as was Britain, um, but everywhere, no. I mean, there were there were no women really in in, in the profession that much. It was a very closed old boys club, um, and so she she had to really fight. Uh, from the beginning of her career but
1: she um, won she, the fights and she, she became she a did. project manager in the department of Egyptian antiquities at the Louvre at the age of 21
4: yes that, that was incredible she was really well she was the only woman in in the uh, Egyptian antiquities department um and and she fought her way through i mean she she constantly, she would never let a man tell her what to do um, and that's that's the thing that, that all the way through her life, the reason she was able to accomplish so much is because of that that trait, <laughs> that characteristic.
1: I didn't realize that she was just over five feet tall. Easy to bully, no way.
4: <laughs> You're right. I mean, I love, I mean, there are a number of stories in this book where she is confronted not only by one bully, but many bullies, whether the Gestapo, whether they're her fellow colleagues, and they're all much taller than she. But she, right from the beginning, I mean, from her upbringing, she, she also went to a very, very enlightened high school for girls in, in Paris. So right from the beginning, she was not willing to be told what to do. And and that you know whether it was De Gaulle, I mean she she went up against De Gaulle, she went up against the <laughs> she refused to let any man do that. To well, her.
1: she was five foot tall. De Gaulle was ten feet tall. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> having having been on many digs or observing many digs, I've noticed that archaeologists often treat their uh, the Egyptians with whom they work well with a certain degree of uh, contempt. She took a very different approach.
4: She did and 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 that's really interesting right from the beginning of her career. I mean her first experience in Egypt was in the Valley of the Kings working with two of the two great um French archaeologists that they, they were her mentors and and both of them were very much working with the Egyptians that they weren't um you know supercilious they weren't uh, telling them what to do and Christiane from the beginning of her career worked with the Egyptian laborers. I mean they she didn't um she didn't act like their their boss I mean and she, she really tried to understand the Egyptian point of view right from the beginning. she learned Arabic, which was very unusual for a Western archeologist at that time, and even now, I think, to some extent. She used to be the, the medical officer. I mean, right from the beginning of her career, she, she took care of the laborers. She nursed them, you know, when they, when they were hurt or whatever. So she had this incredible relationship with Egyptians that very, very few of her male colleagues had.
1: Five foot nothing, she confronts the might of Germany. As the Germans approach, she's got to get a lot of stuff to safety.
4: Right, that, that, that was kind of, you know, she had started her career as an Egypt, Egyptologist, she was in Egypt, and then the war broke out. Um, and when when Germany invaded France, the Louvre, thanks to its its wonderful director, Jacques Jarjard, evacuated all of its major treasures. All of its major artwork and antiquities to chateaux in 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 the uh, Loire Valley to get them away from the Germans, and she was part of that. She had to pack up the Egyptian antiquities from the Louvre and and and, and kind of oversee their transportation to these chateaux in these convoys. And you know, again, you know, she's in her twenties. She's five foot tall, as you say. And, and she's in charge of all this and she does it, um, you know, and, and then after doing that, then she becomes involved in the resistance, um, you know, in, in France.
1: I'm talking to Lynn Olson about her Empress of the Nile, Christiane deroche Noblecourt. Okay, she gets involved in the resistance.
4: She does, yes. Um, it, it's, it, it's it's a great story. You know, she's working at the Louvre. She's she's a curator at the Louvre, and so she's working at the Louvre during the weekdays, and then at night and on the weekends, she's involved in the resistance and risking her life to you know defy the Germans. Um, and here, you know, again, she comes up against the Germans. Uh, she's arrested by the Gestapo at some point when she is she is an actual spy. I mean, she's carrying intelligence. And they, they catch her, and, uh, you know, she just stands up to them too. She just basically says, you know, I'm not going to go along with what you're doing.
1: <laughs> Lynn, she also found time for a personal life. She got married during the war.
4: She did. That, it, it, it's really unusual. She never liked to talk about her personal life, ever, by all accounts. Um, but she did... Uh, meet. Uh, actually, she had known him for some time. He was a friend of her brother's, a young engineer named Andre Noblecore, and he courted her during the war. and And she did get married to him, but she said she wouldn't live with him because she was <laughs> in the resistance, and that was dangerous. And she didn't want him to, you know, to um, be arrested along with her. So, so they didn't live together until right before the war ended, and then. She decided, well, maybe I'll have a child, but it's going to be when I want a child. So her whole life, her personal life, was revolved around her passion for Egypt.
1: So she stays married for 57 years. I have to ask you, did she start her own dynasty?
4: Did she start her own dynasty? Um, Yes, she did. She had one child um but from all accounts never really paid much attention to him um (laughs) and you know initially she did she didn't want to go back to egypt because he was he was small but but eventually she was persuaded that it was important for her to to go um, and so from then on, she really focused on her career in Egypt. She had told her, her husband before they got married that he had to agree that you know, her, her career came first, you know, which was incredibly unusual for a, a woman to do that. It's still incredibly unusual for a woman to do that now, but back then, uh, and he accepted it. And, uh, and I think that's probably why they stayed married for 57 years.
1: Let's move on to NASA's proposal for the Aswan High Dam and the catastrophic consequences it was projected to have.
4: Yeah, after the war, Nasser the, the Colonel Nasser and his group of officers took control, you know, basically staged a coup in 1952 um, and, and ousted the British. The British, British had really been in control of Egypt for more than a century at that point. Um,
1: Good morning, the- they deserved to be kicked out. And
4: Absolutely. It, and, of course, the Aswan
1: <laughs> was one of his v- vision splendid.
4: Yes, he, he, he decided that, that he was going to build... Uh, the world's biggest dam to provide enough electricity um, for Egyptians exploding population uh, after he took over control and and that was great that was wonderful except that in doing that he was going to uh, the dam was going to destroy uh, more than 20 of Egypt's most uh, priceless temples and you know the Egyptians didn't like the fact that they were going to lose their temples, but they didn't think that there was anything they could do about it. That the, fu- the future was was more important than the past. And Christiane, who who was working as a consultant in Egypt then, said, "No, you can't do that. You 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 can't let these temples be destroyed." And so she led this incredible one initially one woman crusade um to save these temples when everybody said that's impossible you know that the a you can't do it you know technologically and b nobody's going to pay the money that you need to raise to to do it but she was absolutely determined um that she was going to try and uh, in 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 the end she won
1: i must say to to visit those sites now is absolutely awe-inspiring not only for their magnitude and grandeur but for the fact that it was achieved
4: uh, oh absolutely no uh, uh, you know achieved on so many levels achieved initially and then you know for them to be able to to save them I, it, it's 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 just extraordinary and it it's it's fascinating that um basically there was just general agreement that this could not be done just could not be done and through the force of her will, she managed to persuade enough people to and organizations, UNESCO being one of them, to join in this crusade. And she she pulled off the impossible.
1: Well, one of the reasons she pulled it off was because she found a, a friend in the White House, didn't she? In in Jackie, she
4: did. She did. Um that that was that was one of the, the most fun parts of writing this book. I had no idea. Uh there there were two women actually involved that played crucial roles in saving these temples. One obviously was Christiane, the other one was Jacqueline Kennedy. Um and I had no idea of that. I had never heard of, of that. But Jackie Kennedy, uh her husband, John Kennedy, had just been elected president in 1960. Um, and he he obviously took office in 1961 and replaced Dwight Eisenhower, who was absolutely against um, saving these temples and, and you know would not put up any American money to save the temples. Jackie Kennedy got very very involved in this crusade and persuaded her husband to go to Congress and to provide enough money to to rescue Abu Simbel without american aid uh, abu simbel would be at the bottom of a you know a giant reservoir now um, american aid was absolutely crucial and uh, the kennedys were responsible for coming up with
1: that money. You describe it as the greatest single example of cultural cooperation the world has ever known in the 2,000 engineers, archaeologists, architects, surveyors, craftsmen and labourers from more than a dozen countries came together. I mean, that is simply breathtaking and none of this would have been possible without Christiane. That's right, that's
4: absolutely right. I mean, obviously there were, you know, as you just said, thousands of people, but none of it would have gotten, they would not have been there without her if she had not had that absolute determination to see this through. I mean, the Egyptians were ready to let those those temples be destroyed. Nobody else really cared, And she, but she just kept going and going and going, you know, and persuading everybody, Nasser, um, you know, de Gaulle, everybody, that you couldn't do that, you couldn't do that. And and uh, she managed to pull it off.
1: She also uh, played a role in regard to Carmen, uh, didn't she?
4: She did. Um, actually, in a way, Christiane was responsible in a more than small way for the tut craze that, that occurred in the 1960s and 1970s as a thank you gift to France and to Christiane uh, for what they did to save the temples, uh, Nasser ordered, uh, you know, an exhibition of a large exhibition of Tut's treasures to go to the Louvre in 1967, and Christiane curated it. That was the first major exhibition of the Tutankhamun treasures outside Egypt. Period, and and it was in thanks to for what the for what she had done. And it, it it took Paris by storm. It took France by storm. It was it was just an enormous success. And from that exhibit, um, then the Tut treasures traveled all over the world. From you know to uh, the Soviet Union, to to the UK, to the United States. And again, you know, this is this is the beginning of TUT This is this was really the beginning of major. Uh, museum exhibitions and, and, and it really revolutionized museums uh certainly in the United States and I think in, in other parts of the world. And and again she was kind of the uh the you know the the seabed I mean she 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 started it all because because of what she had done for um, the temples in Egypt.
1: I think there should be an obelisk raised to her in the center of Paris <laughs> immediately. I totally agree. <laughs> immediately, if not sooner. Lynn, thank you. My guest has been Lynn Olson, a New York Times bestselling author of nine books of history. We've been chatting about her latest Empress of the Nile, the daredevil woman archaeologist who saved Egypt's ancient temples from extinction just published by Scribe. And on our next, we'll find out why uh, tensions are again rising between North and South Korea, and we look back on the life of US President Jimmy Carter with his former speechwriter, James Fallows. See you then.